0: good morning ucc and welcome to ucc live our church or whatever the heck we are calling it these days thanks much for joining us and and for those who are watching this whether live right now with us who have been a part of our UCC community, which I think is so unique. I've gotten some emails and some communications from people that we've got some people who are joining us that actually weren't part of our in-person service, kind of like what Lashana said when she did announcements, which I think is so funny that uh, there are people who are joining us who've never actually been at the Princess Twin Cinemas with us. For you, I want to say welcome and thanks so much for joining us, and thanks for being a part of our service. Um, so this morning, we're going to continue on a series that we started off a few weeks ago. And just a reminder, um, if you've missed any of the teachings and you want to go back to watch it or the service itself, um, you can go to uccwaterloo.ca backslash sermons and all our old sermons are archived there. So when we made the shift from YouTube... To what we're doing right now, uh, we had to change where we placed our sermons. So you can go back there uh, to get our sermons with the notes and all that. So hopefully, that if uh, if you want to catch up on any of the teachings, you can go ahead and do that. Let's recap what we talked about last week, just so that we're all on the same page. So. We're in the book of 1 John, and remember, as I've said through the series, 1 John is a very unique book. And the reason it's unique is because it is one of the last letters written to the church. So we think it's written around 90 AD uh, approximately. So John has outlived all the other disciples, all the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry. So his letter is very unique because he's writing to a very different group of people. And the group of people he's writing to is more... um, it's more like what we are today, right? So John is writing to the second-generation Christians, and so I think that's really unique. Last week, we just, we just hunkered down on two verses. Remember, the week before that, we, we, we zipped through uh, chapter 1 because it was all kind of connected. Last week, we, uh, we sat on chapter, uh, two verses on chapter 2 because of how much content was in them. So last week, we looked at this verse here. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is He is Jesus Christ, the One who is truly righteous. He Himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. And so the two questions we were trying to a- um, answer last week was, why would God forgive me and how can I trust this? Now, just pause here for a second. Chapter one has that one verse in it, which I love, but I think people can overlook or take for granted, right? So in first John chapter one, verses eight to 10, John lays this this, this, this formula out, right? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to purify us and forgive us from all unrighteousness. Now, the reason why that's such a prolific verse is because what God is basically saying is that no matter what we have done, what brokenness, whether habitual, and that was the thing that we kind of zeroed in on last week, right? The sin that really affects us, the one that really kind of breaks our spirit sometimes is the repetitive nature of sin that we have. And so... The question we wanted to ask last week and answer was, why would God forgive me and how can I trust this, right? Remember last week I said that these verses almost seem too good to be true. And whenever something is too good to be true, we're like, uh, I don't know how to approach it. But remember, the too good to be true is being applied to God here. Whatever you think about God, however you approach God, you have to first allow him to speak for himself. Before you reinterpret it, before you say, no, no, I know what God meant, Just accept what he is saying. And so the answers we kind of came up with is, why would God forgive me? Because he has made it his contractual obligation. Remember, John uses this phrase of advocate, right? So remember, in the legal system, in the ancient world, but also today, there are two people, right? There's the advocate and the accuser, right? John uses the word advocate to talk about Jesus, right? And Jesus means, that means he's pleading for us to the Father, right? While the accuser is, is, is accusing us of our sins, which we, of course, know. So John puts these two tensions there, but says, listen, Jesus has created something for us, through the, for the Father, so that we are righteous, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. And the second part is, how can I trust this, right? And I said to you that you have to look to the cross. Remember, we looked at the word atonement last week, and atonement is one of the greatest words in the the Bible, because it, it it has this idea of bringing two parties that are that are in conflict, that are fighting, that are separated, that are divorced, and bringing them back into unity, right? And the atonement is that verse, which re- that, that word that really applies to our relationship with God before Jesus. And so when we ask the question, why would God forgive me and how can I trust this, John kind of answers this for us last week. And remember, we, we, we looked at this quote from A.W. Tozer. And I, I love this quote because he, what A.W. Tozer does is he zeroes in on something. Now, I know there are lots of words, but don't worry. I'll read it for you. It says this, Jesus Christ came not to condemn you, but to save you, knowing your name, knowing all about you, knowing your weight right now, which in pandemic is increasing uh, daily, but that's a different conversation. Knowing your age, knowing what you do, knowing where you live, knowing what you ate for supper and what you will eat for breakfast, where you'll sleep tonight, how much clothing costs, who your parents were. He knows you individually as though there were not another person in the entire world. He died for you as certainly as if you had been the, been the only lost one. He knows the worst about you and is the one who loves you the most. Now, what I love about this is that what A.W. Tozer is bringing to, to light is our sins can be hidden. Our sins can be secret, right? And, and that's, that is as it is. But they're not secret to God, right? What we are is laid bare before God. And God is not looking at us expecting perfection. What he's looking for us is looking for transformation. What he's looking for us is honesty and authentic, uh, authenticity in regards to our relationship. So that knowledge is is part and parcel to uh, John's understanding of what Jesus did. So that's what we looked at this week. This This morning... We're gonna to have to go a little bit deep, and a little bit metaphysical, because next we're gonna we're gonna sit at the next two verses. Now, don't forget, in this new uh, online church platform that we have, if you want to bring up the uh, scripture verses, there's a tab you can click, and you can uh, bring up First John uh, chapter two, and you can see the uh, verse there. And again, you can even pick your translation, which is kind of handy. So this morning we're gonna we're gonna sit in two verses. Because remember, I said to you that there are two themes that are going to uh, go through the book of First John. The first one is John writing to the second generation, but the second one is to this group called the Gnostics. Remember? And we talked about this Gnostics in the first week, and you can go back to review that. But basically, Gnosticism in the early church and for the next several hundred years was a group of people who had secret knowledge or hidden knowledge about Jesus. And we're actually going to look at some of the Gnostic Gospels this morning and then kind of talk about them a little bit. So, John is going to address both these groups in these next two uh, two verses, so they're kind of important for us to kind of get wrap our heads around because John is going to ask us how we know something. So this idea of knowledge is actually kind of interesting, right? So there's a branch of philosophy called epistemology. Now, That is not a swear word, what I just said, just to be clear, right? Epistemology is the philosophy of how you know something. So epistemology by Dr. Peter Ellerton says this, how do you know what the weather will be like tomorrow? How do you know how old the universe is? How do you know if you're thinking rationally? These and other questions of the how do you know variety are the business of epistemology, the area of philosophy concerned with understanding the nature of knowledge and belief. Now, Epistemology is very fascinating because it asks the question not about what you do know, but it asks the question of how did you discover it, which is really interesting if you think about it. And again, a little bit, uh, it can give you a bit of a headache if you think about it too much. But what's interesting about epistemology is it's, it's trying to ask some, que- some interesting questions before we make statements. So it's, it's asking us, okay, you claim to believe this, but how did you acquire this knowledge? Right? And, 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 and again, this is fascinating, and this is also a part of what John is going to ask us this morning. Uh, Dr. Ellison goes on to say this. Um, <clears throat> Whatever the area in which we work, some people imagine that beliefs about the world are formed mechanically from straightforward reasoning or that they pop into existence fully formed as a result of clear and distinct perceptions of the world. Let me just pause here for a second. The reason why epistemology is so important, because right now in the world... How do I say this gently? Everyone has lost their ever-loving minds, it seems like, right? So you have so many different people protesting so many different things, and really what we are faced with is, is what claims of protests are true, what are valid, and I love the fact here that he says this, right? That, um, that we think that we are straightforward reasoning. So there are, right now, anti-mask protests. And again, please hear me very clearly it's not important to me whether you are an anti masker or not. Well, it is kind of, but that's a whole different conversation. Maybe we'll answer that in theology, pub. But what's more important to me is how did you arrive at that belief? Right? What mechanisms did you use? See, everyone thinks that they're rational in their reasoning. Spoiler alert, maybe not as much as you think, right? And I love this one too, right? That we think that, oh, these, these ideas just pop into our heads. They don't. Right? We are the sum total of, of our environment, of our biases, of all these things, and we put the, all this together to create this filter by which we interpret the world. Right? That's what epistemology asks. The sincerity of one's belief, the volume or the frequency with which it is stated or assurances to believe me should not be rationally persuasive by themselves. Now, what I love about this is that what he's basically saying is you sometimes have to question your beliefs. You have to ask yourself, how did I arrive at this this conclusion, and did I arrive there in a rational way? Now, you think that that's kind of a weird thing to apply to faith and and religion, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but this is still important. And so when you walk back some of your beliefs, what you really need to know is how did you come to believe what you believe? And just so you know, that that is actually a really important statement. How did you come to believe what you believe? So... This morning, if you're watching this, and perhaps you're not a Christ follower, or you're not even religious, I don't know how you found us. but whichever way you found us, you're watching this, and, and maybe your assumption is there is nothing supernatural about the world, so there is no God. Maybe you're watching this, and you're saying, no, no, I believe there is something supernatural about the world. I believe about God. But the next question is, well, what are your beliefs about God? And again, that may be more of a theology pub question, but simply put, how did you arrive at your beliefs? You know, when you look at the philosophy of epistemology, there are there's a ton of different ways of knowing, right? So what's interesting is that there isn't a kit, there isn't a um, uh, 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 an, an agreement amongst all these scholars of the single types of knowing, right? So when you look at epistemology, there can be fifteen ways of knowing. Some have four ways of knowing. Some have eight ways of knowing. I've kind of Picked and, cho- picked and chose uh, some ways I think of it, right? So there's cognitive, right? Which is which basically is information and data, right? So basically, your cognitive, your reasoning says, you know, I'm gonna make this, I'm gonna believe this because of this information. Now again, epistemology asks is, what information did you choose to believe and which did you choose to discount? And again, this applies a lot to our po- our, our political debate today, right? So again, I've said this before and I'll just repeat to you, Politics is way more personal than it is information, right? It's way more personality than it is simply information. And I know people think that their, their political uh, positions are very rational and based upon information. We are the party of science. No, you're not. You are the party, and again, whichever party you are, you're the party of this is this is what I choose to believe, right? Nietzsche once said about Christianity, it is therefore our assumptions that dictate what we believe, and not our information. It is simply a point is that our preferences are way more uh, important to us than than actual information, which is important to think about, right? So, cognitive. The other part of knowing is relational, and this is emotional and personal, right? So. When you get to know somebody, you don't ask for their resume, which would be kind of funny if you did, right? Now, on some of these dating websites, there are kind of a relational resumes, right? But you really don't get to know these people until you actually interact with them, right? And that is still a journey of learning and growing as you get to know them, right? So relational is a type of knowing, but again, it takes a lot more time, right? There's another one I, I think is kind of interesting. It's called encoded knowledge. This is this. Encoded knowledge is a knowledge that has been recorded in symbolic code, so Symbolism in our culture is something very important. And again, symbolism has a, has a variety of meaning based on our culture, right? So depending on on your ethnicity, uh, based upon uh, uh, Western philosophy, all that, right? But I think encoded knowledge is really fascinating. And I kind of created my own one because I couldn't find it. I'm just going to call it metaphysical. And this is a derivative of a priori knowledge. Now, a priori simply means, and again, it's Latin because people want to be pretentious, means um, knowledge that comes before, right? So basically ingrained, embedded into all of us is a certain type of knowledge that we have that we, uh, uh, of the world. I would propose to you that that would be the image of God. But because philosophy and this mechanics of knowledge doesn't really acknowledge the supernatural as a way of knowing, it does, but in kind of roundabout ways, not as clearly concise as I would like it, I kind of created my own category, I call it metaphysical. And somebody put it this way, is a reality that outside of human sense of perception, knowledge that is beyond human senses. So people say, can you quantify God? And I'm like, ah, I don't, I can't, I can't point to you, to God. Right? I can show you other ways of understanding God, but I can't show you literally who God is. Right, So that would be what I would call metaphysical knowing. One last thing before we kind of jump into this. And again, I apologize for all the uh, information here. And again, hashtag sorry, not sorry. But there's another thing called cognitive dissonance. Now, the reason why I, I want to kind of pause with this because John is going to talk about this dissonance within what we believe about Jesus and who we are as people. So cognitive dissonance is this refers to a situation involving conflicting attitudes, beliefs, or behaviors. This produces a feeling of mental discomfort leading to an alteration in one of the attitudes, beliefs, or behaviors to reduce the discomfort and restore balance. So here's the reality. We all have things that we believe, but there's ways that we behave that could be in conflict with those beliefs. So what happens is there is a mental tension cognitive dissonance that is going to help us to either alter our belief or alter our behavior. Now, as Christ followers, this is absolutely true for us because we know that how we ought to act. And again, John is going to give us what that looks like, right? And and what can happen is that when we don't act the way that we believe, there's this tension. Now, again, in, in chapter one, John provides for us the relief of that tension, that's forgiveness. Remember, we looked at in chapter one is this idea of the mental health concept of divine grace. When when, when people have this concept of divine grace, they are more readily able to forgive themselves and to forgive other people. And it's based upon this idea that a being greater than myself has forgiven me. Now, cognitive dissonance says, I will alter what I am, who I am, because obviously there's a disconnect with, with the, between these two things. And that has been the theme for the last two weeks for our screw tape letters as well too, right? C.S. Lewis has tried to res, uh, hone in on A, hypocrisy, but also apathy within our faith. Now, this, this can be one of the ways we change depending on our stubbornness factor. So cognitive dissonance can be this, this, this gentle hum in the background of our mind saying, ah, huh, this is what I believe, this is how I behave. But as our behaviors become more and more egregious, that tension increases more and more. And really, it's stubbornness that is going to stop us, fr- uh, or is going to change us quicker uh, or, or not as quick, depending on whether we're saying, you know what, I have to change something. right? And I believe the Holy Spirit can be in this as well, too. Especially, again, we talk about the Holy Spirit, and this uh, one, of the, the main uh, characteristic of the Holy Spirit is conviction right, bringing to mind the truth of who Jesus is and, and realigning our lives with that truth. Now, with all of this in the background, again, you'll, you, you, when you see this next couple of verses, you'll understand where I'm going with this. Let's take a look at the next two verses here, and we're going to answer two questions this morning. How do we know something, right, again, uh, epistemology, but how do we prove that knowledge, Because that's what John is going to ask us this morning, right? So if you're, wherever you are right now, whether you're watching this at this point in time or you're watching this at a later date, John is going to ask you a question. How do you know Jesus and how do you prove that knowledge of Jesus? Which again is a great question, but remember, John is talking to two people, two types of people right now, right? Second generation Christians, but also Gnostics. Right, people who think they know, or have secret knowledge, or or God has revealed to them, or whatever it looks like, right? So he's going to talk to both those groups right now in these next couple of verses. So turn in your Bibles, open your apps, pull down the tabs, and we're going to take a look at First uh, John chapter two, verses three to six. These three verses are a doozy, and you'll see we're going to we're going to we're going to walk through them piece by piece to be able to kind of understand what John wants to give to us, and at the end, hopefully hopefully. I'll summarize and give you the idea there, right? But take a look at what John's saying to us. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. You see what I'm talking about, right? There's so much in these verses that we just need to hunker down here and kind of wrap our heads around them. And again, Let's go back to week one with that quote from Ray Stedman. Remember, Ray Stedman's talking about the second generation of Christians. Look, remember what he said? He said this, By 90 AD, enough time had lapsed for many of the things Paul spoke to have begun to occur. Apostasy was underway. There were many who were untaught, and they provo- provided fruitful ground for false teachers who had already departed from the faith. William Barclay described this condition, states that certain things had almost inevitably happened within the church, So in the second generation of Christians around 90 AD, whom John is writing to, a lot of stuff that Paul talked about had already happened. Remember, by 90 AD, the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed, right? The Romans came in in 70 AD, put down this huge uh, um, um, revolution and destroyed the temple. So when Paul talks about this destruction of the temple, it's already happened. Right? This is why the language of the, of, the, of the Bible and the New Testament especially is of the end times because they're seeing a lot of what Paul talked about. Ray Sedman goes on to say this. Many were now second or even third generation Christians. The thrill of the first days had, to some extent, at least passed away. In the first days of Christianity, there was a glory and a splendor. But now Christianity had become a thing of habit, traditional, half-hearted, nominal. Right? I cringe when I hear that because that's us today, right? Men had grown used to it and something of the wonder was lost. John was writing at a time when, for some at least, the first thrill was gone and the flame of devotion had died to a flicker. And again, one of the reasons why I think this is even more relevant for us right now is this idea of the pandemic. I was just mentioning to Ken this morning, producer Ken, that's the that's nickname for Ken, is this idea that we use the word pandemic now like as if it's normal, right? We are now living in this new normal where you know pandemic was this thing that Hollywood would talk about a couple of years ago and would scare us with, and now... We're actually living in the pandemic, right? And so in this pandemic, our spiritual routines uh, have been disrupted, right? Our in-person gatherings and what we do has been totally disrupted. So for the last 10 months, I had to do a little math there. For the last 10 months, you have been kind of on your own, for your spirituality. And this is where we came with the pandemic faith survival kit and all these things I'm trying to do to help us to continue with our spiritual disciplines. But really, for 10 months, you've been on your own, right? So the passion, the devotion, the external mechanisms we use for for faith towards God, they have really kind of dimmed a little bit. And and so what, what Ray Stadman is saying about the second or third generation of Christians, again, I think it can be applied to us today. We are wrestling with our Christianity in a time when we are trying to struggle with what does it look like to be a Christian in this time. And so what I want to do is I want to break down each kind of sentence there and kind of give you a little more insight into what John is saying here and to kind of give you a a reference as we kind of walk through it a little bit. So, and we can say, and we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commands. So the question is, is how can we know God? Right? You know what I think is so fascinating is when you talk to other Christ followers and you say, What does God mean to you? The variety of answers are just astounding. And I think it's beautiful as well, too, to see the fact that God is so different in representation relationally to each person. So some people will say, God is my teacher, God is my savior, God is my friend, he's my comforter, he's and again, the list goes on and on and on. As a matter of fact, for the billions of Christians around the planet, I think we would have quite a variety of, of the, our relationship with God. But the question that, that, that John's asking us is, how can we know God? I, 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 I love the fact that one of the primary misconceptions of the, of the Bible has been, and this is what I hear a lot of when I talk to people who have either rejected the Bible or rejected Christianity, is they have, they have been taught that the Bible is a rule book for being a good person right? And so if you think of the Bible as a recipe book on what it looks like to be a good person, you will be a little bit disappointed because there are lots of bad people in the Bible. There's lots of bad behavior in the Bible and you look to it and you go, right? What does that mean? In the garden of Eden, right? And again, I've mentioned this before, right? There was a relational harmony between humanity, right? Adam and Eve, but also between humanity and God. And that harmony was broken when sin entered the world. But from Genesis chapter 3 till today, God is trying to restore that relationship. Look what the prophet Hosea says in chapter 6 verse 3. Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. He will respond to us as surely as a revival uh, as a revi- arrival of dawn or the coming of rains in early spring. So what Hosea is saying is that when we seek God, he responds to us. Isn't that interesting? That how Hosea is trying to convey the creator of the universe is intimately in a relational conversation, right? Relational knowledge. Look what Psalm 27, 8 says. My heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. And my, my heart responds, Lord, I am coming. Right? I think it's so beautiful that what the Bible really is, is God's relationship, his, his desire to be known by his creation. That is what the Bible is about. So when you think of the Bible as, as, as rules of, of, of right and wrong, and it is that, please understand, right? Every relationship has rules, right? I, when, I, in, when I do premarital counseling, one of the things I establish is that, you know, relationship have rules. A healthy relationship has healthy rules. A dysfunctional relationship has dysfunctional rules. So obviously in premarital counseling, what I try to do is I try to talk to the couples and understand the rules they've created and point out, well, that may not be a great one. And this is the one that you probably should think about uh, placing in your life just in regards to a healthy relationship. Well, the thing is with God is what he's not so concerned about is how sinful we are because he knows, right? You know, it's interesting. Of the seven plus billion people on the planet, God sees each and every one of us because he's infinite. So seven billion seems like a lot for us, but that's like nothing to God. He's not surprised by sin. It's not as if he looks at, at the earth and goes, whoa, I didn't, I didn't see that happening. I didn't see this individual or that individual or these people or that nation or this country acting this way. No, no, God knows. And, and, and not only does God know, but he also no, knows. In other words, he sees the future as well, too. He sees the past, he sees the future, and he sees the present all at the same time. Sin is not what God is so obsessed with. We could be obsessed with it, but it's not what God's obsessed with. What God's obsessed with is what Hosea and what David said. Come, come know me, right? How can we be sure that we know God if we obey his commands? Uh, look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. Right? Matthew chapter 7 sets this really interesting paradigm up. Remember, Matthew 7 is this uh, story of the sheep and the goats, right? The separation of those who will experience eternal life with God and those who will experience eternal life without God. Look what Jesus says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my father in heaven will enter on judgment day. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and we cast out demons in your name. We performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Now, just want to point something out here, right? The people who say, Lord, look at all we've done for you. But what what does God say? I'm not as concerned what you've done for me as much as you have done with me. Right? There's a difference. Right? There's a difference. Now, look what he says here. Get away from me, you who breaks God's laws. There's this intimate understanding in, in, in the Bible about God's laws and God's character. And what we have done is we've taken God's laws and God's character, we've separated them. And we've placed placed these laws as these unbearable things that we hate. And we've placed God over here as someone we love, but because of the laws, right, we go, I'm I'm in this tension between the two. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter seven, why do I do what I don't wanna do? And again, I've said this before, I love that statement from Paul because that's how I feel sometimes why do I do what I don't want to do? And Paul's response is, because sin is living in me. And the next phrase out of his mouth, what a wretched man am I. What a wretched species we are, right? But again, if that's the only place you stayed, then you would miss Romans chapter eight, verse one. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, right? So, Paul's dark night of the soul of wrestling with the sin and the reality of his brokenness, well, the dawn of God's love and His mercy. There's now no condemnation. So, what is Jesus saying here? Is it's knowledge of Him, relationship of Him, intimacy with Him, is what He's really concerned about? And I'm going to I'm, I'm going to show you what that looks like just in a second here. Let's move on. Um, sorry. It, um, and we can be sure we know if, for him, if we obey his commandments, right? Understand this, right? Jesus replied, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. But you need to understand something. God is the primary. The outflow is the secondary right? How does Jesus say this, right? Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Now, remember, I've told you this story before, right? And again, apologies for beating myself. I love it, right? Because when I first became a youth pastor, the big problem that I had to resolve at the church that I was at was school dances. And again, I look back at that and I chuckle to think, oh, how simple the life I had at that time as a youth pastor, I can't imagine being a youth pastor today, but that's a different conversation. So the parents and the youth came to me, and the parents said, tell our children they can't go to school dances. And and my youth are saying, tell our parents it's okay we go to school dances. And and remember my response, the response that no one seemed to like? And my response was, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and then do whatever you want. That's a very unsatisfying response because it's not a rule response. It's a relational response because it's really not about what you do. It's really about how much you love God. And that's the important part. Remember, this is Jesus encountering the rich young ruler, right? Remember what the rich young ruler says, good teacher, rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? Inherit eternal life. In other words, give me what's due me. And Jesus says, you know, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't steal, honor your parents. And he says, all these I've done. Of course you haven't, right? Jesus is this. Look, all of the law hangs upon these two things. Again, churches love rules. Christians love rules. But the world loves rules as well, too. Now, the the world's rules keep shifting and changing every six months, right? But God says, listen, when he tries to sum up the commandments, it's relational, right? Love. Love is a relational word. Right, Love isn't this like, oh, uh, I, I can quantify love for you, right? No, you can't. Love the Lord your God. That's the first rule. That's the first law. The second one, and then love your neighbor. These are how you understand God's commandments. And this is what John is trying to say for us. Now watch this. If someone claims I know God but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and not living in the truth. That's a that's kind of a fun way to talk to somebody, eh? Hey, so uh you don't actually live like a Christian. You're a liar, you know. You know, these are things we say inside our heads, but these are not something we're supposed to say out loud. However, I I have been known perhaps to say these things out loud, but that's a different conversation. So, what happens here is how do you test someone's claim of knowing somebody? Right? Like like how do you test that claim? So remember, one of the reasons why John keeps using the word "no" is because there's a group of people within the church that claim to know Jesus but never met Jesus right People who said, "Oh yeah, I was with Jesus when he did this and John's like, no, you weren't. I was there there was only three of us you know or there was only twelve of us. I was there, you were not there so how do you test someone's knowledge of Jesus so one of the people one of the group of people that John is talking to are the Gnostics now Let me give you an example of the Gnostic Gospels. So for those of you who have ever heard of the book The Da Vinci Code, it took the world by storm with the movie um, with, um, what's his face, Forrest Gump, I can't remember his name now. Uh, But, you know, he played the main character, right? And The Da Vinci Code was based upon this concept that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married, right? Because this comes out of the Gnostic Gospels. Now, if you were to Google Gnostic Gospels, you can, but I, I don't recommend you do. Actually, no, maybe, maybe do so. I don't know. But the point is the Gnostic Gospels are fascinating because there's this group of books that were discovered in something called the Nag Hammadi Library in the 1970s. And, and people saw, and, and they had the f- uh, phrases like the Gospel of Thomas. So, of course, the world says, well, why isn't that in the Bible? Right? And that's a whole interesting conversation. Again, theology pub conversation if you want to know about it. But who decided what books would end up in the Bible? It's actually a pretty fascinating uh, uh, way of thinking about it. But one of the primary ways that the church, the early church... Now remember, the Catholic church didn't have anything to do with this. They ratified what the early church already understood. And what they understood was, we're only going to accept the testimonies of eyewitnesses or people who were there. And the Gospel of Thomas appeared as a second story within the second codex. This is the uh, Nag Hammadi Library. Uh, it was dated papyrus material found in the covers of the codex to 348 CE. Now, here's what's important. John's writing in 90 AD, and he's the last eyewitness. Would you accept the testimony of somebody who lived 150, 200, and, and with some of these letters, they're actually three to 400 years later? And the answer is no. So what's interesting about uh, um, what Dan Brown did is, is he started the conversation that why aren't these books accepted, right? It's the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of the Egyptians. I'm going to show you that one in a second. It's, it's hilarious, right? Why aren't these in the Bible? Well, the simple answer is because they didn't actually know Jesus. They knew about Jesus but they didn't know Jesus. And again, this can be something that can be applied to Christians even today. So let me show you some examples of why John is talking about do you actually know Jesus or do you know about or, or create things right. So three examples. And you know what's interesting about the, uh, about the Gnostic Gospels? They're very sexist. You know, I, I don't know if Tom Hanks mentioned that in the Da Vinci Code. Of course, he wouldn't right but a lot of the uh, of the uh, of these letters these uh, gnostic gospels they were very sexist let me show you right so in the gospel of thomas the one that tom hanks seems to like but leaves this particular quote out says this for women are not worthy of life jesus replies that he himself will lead her in order to make her male so that she too may ha- become a living spirit resembling you males so in the gospel of thomas there's a premise put forward that women can't experience salvation. That in order to experience salvation, they should be turned into guys. Really? Right? Tom Hanks, really? Dan Brown, really? This is where uh, part of me kind of pull my hair a little bit when I hear these so-called uh, experts. So oh, when I went online, right, <laughs> the group of people who were talking about this, and, and and hear me very clearly, it's not just the crazies out there. Like there's this uh, yoga meditation center saying, oh, we love the Gnostic Gospels. Of course you do, Right? But it was also PBS and National Geographic. Supposedly, scholarly, they were asking questions. Well, why aren't these in the New Testament? There's no reason why they shouldn't be, except for the fact they were written three to 400 years after Jesus. But let, you know, PBS, National Geographic, we, we don't want to confuse you with the facts, right? Look at, look at the Gospel of Philip. And the companion of the Savior is Mary Magdalene. The Savior loved her more than all the disciples and used to kiss her often. Are are you sure about that gospel of Philip, whoever you are? Now, look at this one. I love this one the most. The gospel of the Egyptians. (laughs) Look what it says. And by the way, this is a direct quote. A hidden invisible mystery came forth. I, E, O, U, E, A, O. Just so you know, seven vowels, 22 times. That's the gospel of the Egyptians. So the point simply is, is how do you actually prove you, you know somebody? Right, So a lot of people today will make claims about knowing somebody famous or knowing somebody that may be uh, well-known or, 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 or whatnot. But if you just follow somebody's Instagram ac- account or Facebook account or Twitter account, you know about them, but you actually don't know them. And John is trying to distinguish between those two realities. It's one thing to say you know about Jesus, but that's not really what John's talking about. What he really wants to know is, do you know Jesus? Right? Do you actually have a relationship with Jesus? Do you actually have a conversation with Jesus? Which, is, again, is, is, a, is, is a supernatural claim, but that's exactly what John wants to talk about. Now, if someone claims to know God but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar not living in the truth. So two concepts here, knowing and obeying. John's understanding of these two words looks like this. So the first one, of uh, this idea of knowing. Remember we talked about relational knowledge? So when John says something knowing, he's talking about relational, intimate. And also, it's a time commitment. See, one of the things that John understands about Jesus is that this relationship is ongoing. right? So I have, in, in, in my past, I have met some famous people. Um, I met Harrison Ford you know, uh, Han Solo. Now, when I say I met him, he was at a concert about 40 feet away from him, and I screamed at my, to- my top of my lungs, Han Solo, and he turned and he waved at me. Do I know Harrison Ford? I do not. Did I scream at him and probably interrupt him at a concert? Yes, I did. But that's all I know, right? That's not really intimate, or that's not really a time commitment, is it? Right, So we ask ourselves, how do we actually know somebody? We have to realize something is that we know somebody by spending time with them, right? And that's the important part here. Look at the obeying part. Now, obeying is something that's so interesting. You know what's interesting is I've been doing weddings for a couple of decades now. And the word obey used to show up in the vows a lot. They don't anymore. When people write their vows anymore, the word obey doesn't actually show up a lot and people don't like to think about it because obey seems so rules-oriented, right? But now look, understand how John understands obeying. It's an expression of relationship, desire for imitation. So it's not about this idea of do this. It's like, oh, right? It's like, I, I see and I understand. The best way I can convey it to you is, um, many of you know, I, lo- I, lo- I, uh, I love art, right? Uh, I was actually going to be an artist, uh, for my career choice, until God had a sense of humor and shifted the trajectory of my life. But you know that's an argument I'm gonna have with Him when I get to heaven. Apart from that, though, I love art. But I didn't just become an artist by drawing my own stuff. I learned by imitating great artists. Right? You look at them and you see uh, their their technique, their their uh, framing, all that, and you go, "Oh, I want to imitate that." And when you imitate that. You then begin to understand, you find your own voice, right? For those of you who are musicians, when you first started playing your instrument, what you did is you took a song that you knew and you learned to play it, right? But the, Im- the idea was the closer you imitated, right? Nobody had said to you, oh, you're obeying the artist. No, no. You are expressing yourself and you desire to imitate. That's what uh, Jesus is saying. So ways of knowing to understand that, the bridge between these two is love. Right that's what John is trying to say here, knowing and obeying the desire for both is this idea of love. So what John is saying here is that there's ways of knowing Jesus, right? The first and the primary is the Bible, right The Word of God, but the second is in community, and this is where we kind of let down the first part, right and of course, the Bible also tells us that God reveals himself in creation, right. Um, the Bible tells us that creation speaks to, to who God is as well. These are different ways of knowing. And there's more, but you know, these are the simplified ones. Right? But what I love here is that living in the truth is an active word. Knowledge of God is active. See, whenever knowledge of God becomes passive, it stops being relational and starts just being a subject that you study. Right? But for John, he says to know Jesus is every day. It's every day. So tonight I have a Zoom call with one of my mentors, one of, again, uh, in, in, in my opinion, one of the greatest Christians I've ever met, Dr. Ron Kidd. So he's going to have a Zoom call with some of us, and he's going to do a teaching, and I am just overjoyed to have this, right? Because Dr. Kidd, not only does he have multiple PhDs and is the smartest person I know, but he loves Jesus, And he's in his 70s, and he loves Jesus as much as he did when he first encountered Jesus. And that's what I really want in my life. I just want the passion for for my Savior to continue, right? Not to become cold and apathetic, but to continue. And that's what John wants for us as well, is that if you know Jesus, then you're going to have this active sense. And of course, look, right? But those who obey God will truly show how much completely they love him. You know, in the Hebrew... And we talk about this at UCC, that one of the ways we want to make sure that we understand the Bible is through the Jewish lens, because again, that is who is primarily is written to. So in order for us to understand scripture, we have to understand the the Jewishness of it, right? And for the Jewish people, love is a very different kind of a word than it was today. I think our culture has totally missed love. And I mean, it's definition of love in the media, in television, in movies, in song, it's just... Their definition of love is, is more akin to you know, uh, a physical uh, romance of a three months or something like that. That's their understanding of love. But to the Jewish people, love meant something very different, and when you apply this to God, it's almost like the relational aspect of who God is opens up to us. The Hebrew word for love is a hava which essentially describes a kind of affection or care that one person shows another. It is seldom used to describe the feelings or passions between romantic partners, but it is generally used in a more broad sense. In the Hebrew, love is connected directly with action and obedience. Hebraically, ahava is a verb and a noun. It is an act of doing. So when the Hebrew would say, I love God, it's not just an emotion I feel, it's a behavior I act out. Right, But again, a marriage in the proper context has this as well too. I love my wife, Sarah. I might be a little bit afraid of her because she's a redhead and she's a nurse and might smother me in my sleep, but that's a whole different therapy session. But I also want to obey her not just obey her in the sense of like, here's the rules we have. There are rules. She doesn't like it when I, you know, uh, I have breadcrumbs in the uh, margarine if I use it, right? These are rules. But I want to know her, and I I want to make sure that I am living my life in such a way that honors who she is. right? And likewise, she has the same for me. And in that balance, we express our love, not just in I love you, but I show her I love her. So every morning I get up around 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning to take Rosie out for a walk. But before I go out, I make Sarah a cup of coffee. We have a coffee maker in a kitchen. And so I take Rosie out for a walk so she can um, do her business. And then I come in and uh, I, I make her a cup of coffee and I take it to her because she's still in bed. My way of showing love is in service. That's that's one of my love languages. I love to serve people. And so every morning I bring her coffee. Um, I may not say I love her in, first thing in the morning, um, but I say I love her by doing, bringing her a cup of coffee. See, The Hebrew word isn't just simply about, oh, I just feel love. The Hebrew word is, I'm I'm going to do love. I'm going to show love in my behavior as well, too. And again, this is what John wants us to understand about our relationship with Jesus. And again, this is how we know we are living in him. A.W. Tozer says it this way an unexamined christian lies like an unintended garden let your garden go unattended for a few months and you will not have roses and tomatoes but weeds so what aw tozer says is that we have to examine our lives in order to make sure that we are still in relationship this past week in our screw tape letters group one of the things we talked about is when you go through the motions so Screwtape, which is a demon, is telling his his underling demon Wormwood, how do you take a Christian and stop making them a Christian? And Screwtape's advice was, "Oh, just make them go through the motions but not have a relational connection." And we talked about this in our group how terrifying this is because this is so easy for us to slip into. Go through the motions, just sit there and pretend, right? How do we how do we know we're not pretending, right? And that's really when it comes to this idea of transformation. We talk about this all the time. It's not about perfection, but it is about transformation. It is about progression. And the progression may not be that I stop sinning, but the progression might be that I ask for forgiveness sooner. Right? What's your transformation quotient? Right? How much are you knowing Jesus, and how is that knowledge transforming your belief and your behavior? There's a hunger, desire for more. You know, Okay, let me see how I say this in a nice way. I have lots of conversations with Christians, obviously. But the thing that stands out to me as a pastor, as somebody who has been in leadership but also been a Christ follower myself for a number of years, is not about how much they've accomplished, how many mission trips they've gone on, how long they've been to going to church, how, even how long ago that they decided to follow Jesus. None of that really interests me. What really interests me is their hunger for Jesus right now. That is what I look for. Because that is a transformative relationship as opposed to a passive relationship. There are so many Christians in our Western churches today that have slipped from active to passive, and they don't even realize it. We looked at this quote by a guy named Michael Kruger uh, on, on our screw tape letters, and he says, you can be apathetic about your apathy. <laughs> and I thought, Wow. That's amazing, right? You can be apathetic about your apathy. You can be apathetic about your relationship with Jesus. And what John is saying is, this is how we know know Jesus, is because we are living in him. And again, present tense. Not past tense, as many Christians perhaps might think it is, but it's present tense, right? If there's a hunger and a desire for more, and again, that hunger and desire might just simply be about wanting to ask for forgiveness, work on this piece of us, right? And again, we do this through asking for forgiveness and prayer, but we also do it in community as well, too. I had a very um, sad conversation with somebody the other day. They said to me, "Oh, uh, this 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 couple that uh, uh, live on our street, and uh, they know I'm a pastor, and so we were just they were asking me about our online church and you know what we're doing and, and all that. They're actually asking some questions about you know lockdowns and stuff like that." And I said to them, "Oh, like, like, what's your church doing?" And they said to me, "Oh, we don't, we don't go to church anymore." And then she said, "But we're still Christian." And I thought, "Yeah, that's that's what a lot of people think." Now I understand, and they had a reasons for it. And, and please hear me: people who have been hurt or had a bad experience with the church, they just, they need time off to heal, and I get that. Please understand, I get that. But when that time off becomes permanent, there's really not a hunger desire for more. Christianity is intrinsically connected to the body of Christ. That active involvement engagement, right? There's just, there's, there is no shortcut. I'm so sorry. There is no shortcut. Right? That's, just, that's what John wants us to understand. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. You know what, John 17, again, I'm, uh, I'm going to make a lot of references to John. Well, I have, but uh, we're almost done, so I'm not a lot more left, right? But look what John says. And this is the way to eternal life, to know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. You know what's missing from this? To obey the rules, right? That's not what he's saying. And this is the way to eternal life, to know you, Right? We should live our lives like Jesus did, but we can't live our lives like Jesus did if we don't know who Jesus was, right? We, we can't. We have the Holy Spirit revealing scriptures to us, but that's why, you know, when we did the Pandemic Faith Survival Kit, one of the premises of that was reading the Word, reading the Bible, right? That's what was important about it because that's how we discover who and what God is. Um, in 2 Corinthians 1.12, Paul says this, we can say with confidence and clear conscience that we have lived with a God-given holiness and a sincerity in all our dealings. We have depended on God's grace, not our own human wisdom. That is now uh, that is how we have conducted ourselves before the world and especially toward you. That's such a beautiful passage, because look what he says here, right? We have lived with a God-given holiness, separation, called out to be like Jesus, and sincerity in all our dealings. In other words, we're, we're honest, right? We're not trying to be duplicitous. We have depended on God's grace, not our own human wisdom. Isn't that interesting? We haven't depended on God's laws, but his grace, his forgiveness, right? Remember the word grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace is, that forgiveness that we have. So remember we talked about this at the beginning, the four ways of knowing, right? These can be applied to Jesus. I learn about Jesus mentally. I read about him. I get more information, and I process that, right? I learn about him relationally. Every day I'm trying to understand who Jesus is, and the, I'm inviting the Holy Spirit into my life to continually reveal Jesus to me, right? Encoded, Jesus has symbolism in his, in, in his word, and I try to understand that, not in a Gnostic way, but as the Bible says, right? The Bible tells us that Jesus is light, and, 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 and that he is life, and he, like all these beautiful metaphors, right? This is the encoded part, right? And of course, metaphysical, right? The pursuit of God is a supernatural concept, right? We have to always remember that. We can't ever get away from that. This pursuit is supernatural. It is beyond our senses, right? And that's how we have to understand God. So let's go back to the two questions. How do we know something and how do we prove that knowledge? Well, how do we know something? According to how John says, we live as if that knowledge is true. I love what John chapter 6, verse 69 says this. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. What's happening in this verse? Belief is an act of faith. What does the writer of Hebrews say? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So you first have to make that ascent of faith because, of course, you've never met Jesus. I've never met Jesus physically. I wasn't an eyewitness to what Jesus did. So the first is the act of faith. But the second is, as we know as well too, it's an act of faith and an act of assent. We say, we know. We know that Jesus is the only way. We know that Jesus is the son of God. The no other human being ever in history, no politician, no rabbi, no teacher, no uh, whatever else is out there. It's only Jesus, right? And look at the second part. The knowledge transforms us right? Now that you know that these things, God will bless you for doing them. I think the greatest disconnect in the Western church today has been the disconnect between belief and behavior. We we, we, we proclaim one thing, but we behave another, and that is a whole different conversation. Let me close with, again, John chapter 17, verse 3. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to Earth. How do you know, right? If someone said to me, and someone, many people have said to me, how do you know? People who are not Christians, how do you know, right? I know. But I know, right? That's that's the beauty of Jesus. Every day I learn and I grow, and my knowledge of who He is and what He wants to do in my life, and that knowledge is imper- imperfect. It is. It is flawed. It, is, it can be biased. It can be all these things. But the good news is the Holy Spirit, who I invite in my life almost daily, I ask to continue to transform me into that, right? John wants the second generation to know. You've heard about Jesus, but you can still know Jesus. John wants the Gnostics to know that you think you know about Jesus, but we have recorded who Jesus is in Scripture. So you can align what you believe about Jesus to what he said about himself. Right? It's what C.S. Lewis says, that if Jesus claimed to be God, he's either crazy or he's right. You don't really get either option. Right? You don't get to go, well, maybe it's in between. Maybe he's a great, te- no, he's not a great teacher. He's God. Right? He's the incarnation. He's the expression of the creator of the universe. That's Jesus. And as John said, and, and I, would, I would just echo, I invite you to know that Jesus, in every way possible. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you have allowed yourself to know us. And Lord, I know that we as human beings, we, we do that imperfectly. I pray, Holy Spirit, that each person watching, whether now or later dates, that we would first, like Adel Vitoza said, we would maybe just do a self-assessment of, of where we are with our walk with you. Maybe we have fallen asleep. Maybe we become apathetic. And maybe we are apathetic about our apathy. Jesus, I pray, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would reveal Jesus to us once again, that we would know, that we would know, that we would know who Jesus is, what is planned for our lives, and the mission that we have on this planet right now. God, transform our faith from something dead to something alive. And Lord, we rest and rely upon your grace and your forgiveness to pursue this in a world that so desperately needs to hear it. I ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.